Our text this morning is Acts 17, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. It is another one of these well-known passages as Paul goes to Athens to speak at the Areopagus. It's a, it's a passage that has personal fondness to myself. You'll find out a little bit more about that later. But it is the very Word of God. So if you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. God's Word is living and powerful. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. Acts chapter 17. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of all this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that we would seek your face, that we would know you and know the Lord Jesus Christ in a better and deeper way. And that because of that, Lord, that you would change us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you frustrated with our culture? Do you wish it would be easier to witness to people in our neighborhoods, communities, and country? Do you ever get frustrated because you can't understand why people are indifferent to the gospel? Not just hostile to the gospel, but downright indifferent. Well, these are good questions. They're questions that often I ask myself. Because we seem to live in a world in which Jesus doesn't matter. The gospel is unimportant. It is something of a, an oddity, of a fascination as a sidelight. But is not really worth seriously considering. Perhaps you've noticed this when you were at college, the way that professors would sneer at this thought, and and not just the science professors, maybe especially the religion professors, maybe even especially, mostly, those who claim to be Christian religion professors. This can be frustrating, especially to those of us who know the glory of the gospel. So what are we to do? Well, this morning we have a window into evangelism, apologetics, standing for the gospel in a place where there is cultural unbelief, cultural indifference. And as always, we can learn much from the inspired Apostle Paul. And so what I would like us to do this morning is to look and see how Paul engages a society that is indifferent and unknowing of the gospel with the truth of God's word. We'll look first at who Paul has to speak to, the audience. And we'll see that they're not so different from the people that live down the street from us. Then secondly, we'll look at the argument that Paul puts together because this is perhaps a bit less of a sermon and a bit more of an argument for Jesus Christ and the resurrection. This is perhaps the prototypical passage to go when we think about apologetics. And then finally, we will look at the answer. Because you see, Paul is not about merely presenting in a vacuum the truth of God's word. As in every time he addresses people, he presses home the demands of God's word. So the audience, the argument... The answer. 
Let's begin then by looking at this audience. Perhaps many of you are familiar with the city of Athens. You may have studied it in school or may have done some reading or perhaps even you've seen a movie or two about the city of Athens. And maybe to you Athens means people walking around in togas, talking deep thoughts, voting in democratic ways. But Athens was a very complex city. The first thing we need to know about Athens is that it was known mostly for its former glory at this time. Not for its current glory, but for its former glory, because in the 5th century, the city-state of Athens achieved perhaps the greatest dominance that any political entity has achieved in the history of the world. Certainly in the history of the world up to that time. Athens, a small city, was a great military power. You may have heard of how the Greeks defeated the Persians at Marathon and how victory was taken by a runner 26 miles. You may have heard of Thermopylae and the Spartans and the victory that followed on to that, but the key victory over Persia was not Thermopylae. It was not Marathon. It was in the sea battle at Salamis where the Athenian navy, with virtually no assistance, stopped the Persian juggernaut. They were a military power. They were also known for their great architecture. You can travel there now and see it still. The Areopagus, the Parthenon, the temples, they stand thousands of years later, a testimony to architecture, to beauty, to efficiency, to durability. This was Athens. Athens was the first democracy. It was the first place where ordinary citizens, and not everyone who lived there was a citizen, but ordinary citizens voted on laws. They had white pebbles and black pebbles. And it was a kind of democracy that was even more democratic than we have as a republic. Because you see, they didn't elect representatives to vote on laws. They voted on every law themselves. This was unheard of in the ancient world. A world of kings and despots and family dynasties. Athens was also a place where philosophy flourished. Virtually every great philosophical system that we study today rose out of Athens. Socrates, Plato, Zeno. All of the philosophers either lived or came to Athens. But at this time, when Paul is there, Athens is in a current decline. They had been conquered by the Spartans after the 27-year Peloponnesian War. Their walls had been torn down. They had been humiliated, embarrassed, and made a second-class city. And then, a few centuries later, the Romans rolled in. And they cared not for philosopher kings. They rolled right over Athens and incorporated it into their empire. And so a city that had former glory and it was in a current decline was experiencing intellectual pride. That's why we need to understand what Athens is about because the people that Paul was about to speak to knew of the glory of Athens of old. They knew of the current situation and they had a pride in themselves. And so what they would do is they would go down to the marketplace, the famous Agora. It was kind of like a combination of city hall, the town square, and the biggest mall that you could find in the city. 
And people would go there and shop and talk and debate and, and do the equivalent of what you see today in these kinds of places, sipping coffee and talking, playing chess. And they were very proud of themselves. You see, they thought of themselves as being back in the old days and how brilliant they were and how great Athens was. It was kind of like, to put a picture in your mind, it was kind of like a university town. Well, no. It was kind of like a northeastern university town. No, no. It was kind of like an Ivy League northeastern university town. You know the place where everyone sits around and proves that they're smarter than everyone else. So Paul is going, he is heading into the courtyards of Harvard or Yale or Oxford. That's where Paul is. Talk about being intimidated. Much more intimidating than talking to someone down the street or in Starbucks. He's talking to men who at least think they have multiple PhDs after their names. This could be very intimidating. But at the same time, remember that Paul is the perfect man for the job. You recall that we said Tarsus, his hometown was a university town. So perhaps it would be like someone going from Stanford to go visit Oxford. He could speak the language. But Athens was not just a place of intellectual pride. It was also a place where idolatry was found everywhere. There were not just garden variety intellectuals in Athens. Everywhere you would look, there would be an idol. You would look at the Parthenon. Idolatry. You would look over at some other massive building, an idol temple. You would look at the beautiful statues that were the result of the great art of the 5th century B.C., and they were idols. It's as if every time Paul turned his head, you could kind of imagine Paul perhaps even expressing the the hidden, the buried-down tourist in himself. He's got time to kill in Athens while he's waiting for the rest of the party to come back. And he decides to go and walk. It's the first time he's ever been in a Greek city like this, in Athens. Perhaps he had heard about it in Tarsus. Perhaps they spoke about it in Thessalonica. And he's walking down and everywhere he sees, he's not like a modern tourist snapping cameras and in awe. He is literally sick to his stomach. You see what it says here? It says, Paul's spirit was provoked within him. It meant he was having like an epileptic fit. Seizures were seizing his insides. He was so offended at what he saw because everywhere he looked, there was idolatry. And you see, this idolatry was a testimony to the glory of Athens. And that glory of Athens was that Athens was the most glorious testimony to the lostness of man. This was as high a testimony as man without God gets to. It was said in Athens that it was easier to find a God than a man. This was the problem of Athens. It's the problem that we have in America today. You see, our problem in America today is not morality. It is not the breakdown of marriage. It is not dishonesty. All of those things are symptoms of the real problem. The real problem is idolatry. Just like it was in Athens. Well, there was another group of people that he saw. He saw philosophers. 
He went and he spoke, Luke tells us, to the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, you don't need to know a lot about these groups, but a little bit is helpful. The Epicureans were those who were materialists. They believed that all of the universe was made up of atoms, and those atoms had no real purpose. And so there was no afterlife. There was no meaning to death. The meaning to life was to eat, drink, and be happy. Seek all the pleasure you can and avoid all the pain that you can. Does that sound like anyone in our culture today? So when you meet these kinds of people, you know that Paul spoke to them as well. Does it bother you when people live only for today and give no thought to tomorrow? No thought to God? It did to Paul. He engaged the Epicureans. There were also Stoics. They were kind of on the other side of the spectrum. The Stoics believed that life was completely out of control. There might be gods out there, but we had no way to communicate with them. We had no way to have uh, an ability to speak to them or to get them to help us. So life really was out of control, and the only thing that we can do is grin and bear it. Which is why for the Stoics... It was a good thing to commit suicide if you felt your life was losing its dignity. Is there anyone like that in our culture today? You see, as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. These are the people that Paul met. The Epicureans tended to be from the upper class. The Stoics tended to be from the lower classes. But all of them were without God. So what does Paul do? Well, he starts with what he always does. He reasons in the synagogue. But he knows that many, many more people are not found in the synagogue, so he goes out every day into the marketplace. And he begins to build an argument for the gospel. And he begins by starting with common ground. What does he say? He begins and he converses with them about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul begins with Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And it becomes very clear that they don't understand what he's talking about. Because you see, he's speaking of Jesus. And the Greek word for Jesus sounds like the Greek word for healer. And he speaks of the resurrection, which you may have heard of someone who is named resurrection. Have you ever met anyone named Anastasia? That's the Greek word for resurrection. And so they're scratching their heads saying, who is this healer and who is this Anastasia? Who are these foreign deities? And so they give about the worst insult that you can give in one of these intellectual environments. Perhaps you've had this said to you in college at one time or another. They say, what does this babbler wish to say? And and it's, It's actually quite humorous. The word for babbler actually means seed picker. And the image that they want to to put in your mind is that Paul is going around like a bird, pecking on the ground, picking up twigs and putting them together to build a house. He's a seed picker. He's a charlatan. He's an intellectual lightweight. Who is this guy? He probably doesn't have a good curriculum vitae anyway. Where did he go to school? What degrees does he have? 
Who was his teacher? So this is their attitude to Paul. And yet, at the same time, the power of the truth of God's word also presses home on them because for as mocking as they are, they say in verse 19, you've got to come with us. We need to know what this new teaching is that you have. We wish to know what these strange foreign things are. Now, this is, I think, also the way the Lord uses our personalities to draw us to himself, to find opportunities for the gospel. Because you see, the Athenians, and Luke notes it, were well known for wanting to talk about every new thing. This goes back several centuries. You all know who Alexander the Great is. Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon, conquered Athens. And the greatest orator of all of Athenian history, Demosthenes, stood up and he said, you Athenians, all you want to do is talk about new things. Don't you see the enemies at the gate? 200 years earlier, Luke comes to the same conclusion. Maybe you know people like this. They're people that all they want to do is talk on the edges. They don't want to go deep in any subject. They certainly don't want to take any action that could require work or or stress. All they want to do is talk. And then when they're done, they'll talk some more. And then when they're done, they'll talk yet some more. These are the people in Athens. And so Paul seizes upon this opportunity. I imagine in my sanctified imagination that Paul realizes that they don't understand Jesus and the resurrection. So he's not going to abandon that truth, but he needs to put it in a context in which they will understand. And he understands that he has an opportunity. He has their ear. In modern parlance, we would say that they grab Paul by the arm and they say, you've got to come to us to this Starbucks over here. We'll get a crowd together. It'll be open mic night. And you tell us about these new things. Paul seizes on the opportunity. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, this word has both of the connotations that you think it might. It has a good connotation that we use sometimes about being religious. But this word could also be translated superstitious. And they would know that. You see, he is being a little bit biting in his commentary here. He says, I see that you are very religious everywhere I look. There's a temple. He says, as a matter of fact, there's a temple over there to the unknown God. Now, again, to put it in our modern context... It's as if Paul was at the University of Texas or Texas A&M and he said, I see everywhere you are very religious. I see your altar to the great God football and his oblong ball. And I see your great temple to the God science and how it will tell us how the universe came into being of its own. Oh, and I see all of the places of your comparative religion deities where we learn that there really is no difference between Islam and Buddhism and other religions. You see, Paul is playing their game. But he's better at it than they are. 
because truth is on his side. He says, I see you have this temple to an unknown God. And even that is, is humorous. Do you want to know what the Greek word is for unknown here? It's agnostic. He says, you have a temple to the agnostic God. You agnostics have an altar. Tell that to your friend next time when he says, I don't know if I believe in God, I'm agnostic. Say, well, then maybe you should read Acts 17 or take a trip to Athens. They have a temple to your God, the God whom you don't know and not sure is out there. He says, I see you have this temple. Now, this really presses the point of how superstitious the Athenians are. Anyone who could possibly be a god is brought into the mix, even ones they don't know. And we know this is the case because the Athenians were so superstitious, if they found a, an altar that was in disrepair, but they couldn't figure out who the altar was to, which god, they would fix the temple and they would dedicate it to an unknown god. Because they were religious, superstitious. And so what Paul does here is he begins with their knowledge of God and he declares that whom you worship unknowingly, this I declare to you. He begins with God. He says the God of the universe, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, I want you to notice what he does and doesn't do. He does not begin with. Now, you see in Genesis 1, 1. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. Why not? The Bible's a good place to begin, isn't it? Because they don't have a Bible. They've never read a Bible. They don't even know what a Bible is. And so Paul doesn't begin on ground that only he knows and they do not. He begins on a common ground. But I want you to see he does not begin on common ground that acknowledges that they both might be correct. He doesn't begin from pure reason. He is reasoning with them in the marketplace. There is nothing wrong with using your mind. But he doesn't say, well, you know, philosophically, there would be a theory of if God exists. And these would be the five proofs. No, he says, there is a God who exists. Let me declare him to you. He created everything. You see, so he doesn't begin with the words of the Bible, but he begins with the truth of the Bible. He does not compromise on biblical principles at all. He begins with God exists. He made everything. You don't know him. You must know him. That's a summary of Genesis 1 through 12. He takes this opportunity. He begins to reason. And he begins to tell them who this God is. Who Jesus is. Because remember, he's been preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So God for Paul is Jesus Christ. And he says that God is the one. Jesus is the one who is creator. He made the world and everything in it. Now this is not tailored to intellectual Athenians. Because you see, when Paul went to the rural hick town of Lystra. The people that were so off the beaten path that they thought he was Hermes. He said this in Acts 14, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. 
You see, that is how we begin to declare God. God is the creator of all things. He has a claim on everything. Not just on the church. Not just on Christendom. Not just on me. He has a claim on everything. And that's where you begin to draw someone in. Because God means something to them. Whether they think so or not. You see, Paul says, hinting at what he will write more in Romans 1, that no one is truly ignorant. We can pretend we are ignorant. Perhaps some of you here today are pretending. You are pretending God exists because that will please your parents or your spouse or your children or your friends or your pastor. You see, we are not called to pretend that God exists. The Bible tells us that God is true, that God is living, that God is real, and that God demands obedience and worship from His creation. When we know that, all of life is put into perspective. Because God is not only the Creator, He is also the Sustainer. Look at what Paul says. He says, God doesn't need anything. He's not served by human hands. He gives everything life and breath. Without Jesus Christ, we would all vanish into inexistence. God is not just a God who winds up the world and lets it go. He is here today in this very room. Challenging us. To have faith in His Son. To grow in grace. He is creator, he is sustainer, and he is also the sovereign. You see, God does not need anything because he is sovereign. All mankind he has created. All mankind comes from one man. That one man is Adam. Now, as you think and see as becoming more and more prevalent in our circles, saying that, well, Adam wasn't real. Well, Adam is a principle. Well, Adam is a story. He's a Jewish meta-tale. And we, we have to acknowledge because of the truth of evolution and because of to be intellectually honest with people, we need to back off a little bit off this Adam and Eve story. Paul was with the most brilliant men on the face of the earth and he put Adam right in their face. Don't ever shy away from the Scriptures. Because you see, without Adam, there's no Jesus. Without one man who sinned, there is not one man who saves. And it doesn't even make for a comfortable life here. You see, part of the thing that Paul is telling them about Adam is there is a Christian principle of equality. We all come from one man. And this was important because the Athenians, like people you know, were very proud of themselves. Everyone else, there were Athenians... And there were barbarians. And do you know how barbarians got their name? You see, when I even say that word, you're picturing men with huge horns on a helmet and beards and big pickaxes. The reason barbarians were called barbarians was because they did not speak good Athenian classical Greek. Everyone else in the world spoke this language. Bar, 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 bar. Bar, bar, bar. It's like the teacher on Charlie Brown. You were an Athenian, or that was it. 
And you see, Paul is saying we all come from one man. We are all equal before the throne of God. We are all equal before the cross of Christ. And we need to hear that today too, don't we? Because we are tempted to be proud because we are Americans. We are tempted to be proud because we are Reformed. We are tempted to think that somehow we are just a bit better than others. But there are others of us who need to be encouraged. They think that they haven't gone to seminary. They haven't memorized a book of the Bible. They don't know everything that the Bible teaches. And so how could we possibly be saved? And Paul says, before the throne of grace, everyone is equal. We all come from one man. And for this reason, God sheds abroad his light. Paul says he's not far from us. It's not God's fault that we don't come to him. It's our fault. We are the ones distancing ourselves by sin. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it is your sin that keeps you from him. Not God's indifference. God is not far from us. And you see, Paul puts it very interestingly. He says, you know, God is close to us that we might feel about as if to find him, that we might grope to find him. And this word also would would have great resonance with the Athenians because the word here for feel is a word for grope and it describes what the Cyclops did when Odysseus put out his eye. Do you remember that story from mythology? Odysseus had been captured by the Cyclops and they made a big log into a weapon and they poked out his eye and they had to hide because he was going around trying to find them to kill them. He was groping. He, he was trying, but in vain, because he didn't have the ability. That describes the natural man trying to find God. Groping about, stumbling about, talking vaguely about angels and higher powers and Oprah. But you see, they're groping. They're trying to find satisfaction. And they can't. Because outside of the work of the Spirit, we're blind. Well, this is the argument that Paul puts in front of the Athenians. It's an argument for the existence of God, for the reality of God, for the nearness of God, for the need of God. But he doesn't leave it there. You see, far too often in our world, we think that evangelism means presenting Christianity as an option. This is the evangelism that is done down east on I-10, where we worry about having our best life now and about presenting people with good options so that they can fulfill their needs. But you see, that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing. He presents the truth of God's Word and then he presses home the claims of the Gospel. I want you to notice that he does it in in a very gentle way. He calls the Athenians to repent, but it is nothing like the way Peter let the Sanhedrin have it earlier in Acts, is it? He doesn't say to the Athenians, although he could have, you crucified the Lord of glory by your sin. He's gentle. They don't know anything. It's like, It's like teaching your children how to ride a bike for the first time, right? You don't put them on a bike, stand behind the bike, and shove it as hard as you can and say, ride. 
right? You go next to them and you run, and that's painful, and you run next to them. And you say, you can do it, you can do it, trust yourself. But here Paul is pointing them to trust in Jesus Christ. He's taking baby steps with them. But they're important steps because the answer is, in a word, repent. That is the answer to all of life. Repent why? First, Paul says, repent because patience is ending. The patience of God is ending. God has passed over your time of ignorance. The word there means he deliberately decided not to take notice. Have you ever done that in your family? Something's going on, the kids are doing something, and you say to yourself, I don't even want to see what's going on over there. I'm not even going to get involved, because if I get involved in what's going on over there, nobody's going to be happy, and there's going to be all kinds of punishment has to get dished out. So I'm going to stand over here and say this, and when I turn around, it better be better, right? Okay, that's what I like to see. You see, God deliberately overlooked in his patience. But Paul says that time has ended He did not destroy them in the same way that God has not destroyed our nation, that God has not destroyed the church. He bears with it. Patience is ending. Agnosticism is ending. God's patience is done. You see, God says the time of ignorance, there's that word again, agnostic, same word. The time of your agnosticism is over. Paul says. It's no longer permissible to be politically correct and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about the claims of Christianity. It's interesting and it's a good philosophical system, but I'd have to give it some more thought. I'm not ready to commit to that kind of faith system yet. Paul says, you better be ready to commit because the times of agnosticism are over. You're either for Jesus or against him. You either trust in him or you hate him. This is the only option in Athens and in Katy. Agnosticism is over. We must repent because God commands it. There are no exceptions. God commands everyone everywhere to repent. That includes me and you. No one has a hall pass. All men, all women, all children everywhere are commanded to repent. That's whether you're Ethiopian or American. Whether you grew up in a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or no church. All men everywhere are commanded to repent. This is the reality of life. The reason this passage is is important to me, I don't do this often, but I'm going to share with you a brief personal testimony. You see, there are a lot of people willing to discuss and debate issues of morality, religion, and God in a general way. I know this because I was one of them. I went to, as Paul says, speak as a fool, some of the greatest universities in the country. I went to the University of Chicago to study Greek and Latin. And I spoke with people about philosophy and about issues of eternity and morality. 
I was able, before I knew the Lord Jesus Christ, to read the Gospel of Mark by sight in Greek. And I used to go to Bible studies. And there would be an NIV, and there would be a New King James, and there would be a King James, and there would be Fred with his Greek Bible translating on the fly. Because I could, of course. The one thing that I didn't like to do was speak about Jesus in a personal and committed way. And in what I think is a related way, the other thing that I could not stand to do amongst all other things was sing hymns. My opinion was C.S. Lewis's opinion, second-rate music with third-rate words. And so I would always come to the Bible study ten minutes late. And I would go to debating societies at Chicago. And I would debate with men who would become the general counsel of Facebook and clerks for Supreme Courts and general counsel for the lawsuit that settled who would be governor of Washington. The greatest economist, young economist in the nation today was at Harvard. And I would discuss and debate things with these men and talk about our nation and morality and the state of the world. And then I went off to law school where I met Pulitzer Prize winners and a man who would become a congressman and who would come this close to being a senator. And again, we would speak of things like the Constitution and religion And I wasn't the greatest, but I could hold my own. But none of that meant anything. Not a thing. Until I came face to face with Jesus. When I came face to face with Jesus, to the foolish preaching of the Word of God by a former high school math teacher that wasn't even an ordained pastor. You see, you might think, especially you young people, the true intellectual quality is found in questioning everything, questioning what your parents believe, questioning what the Bible teaches, questioning what others say is wrong. But true intellectual honesty is found in the words of Paul in the, in the greatest university that perhaps the world has ever known, that Jesus Christ and the resurrection are your only hope, and you must repent and go to God. And I say this to you not because it is my opinion. Not because I even pull it from this passage. But I say it for this reason in conclusion. You see, the next city that Paul will go to, we will meet next week, is the city of Corinth. Paul had this to say to that church. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want a life verse? 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You need not be afraid, dear believer, of the intellectual power of others. You need not be afraid to stand firm for the truth of the Scriptures. When you do, you will be in good company. And God will be with you.